everybody. How's it going? Merry Christmas. God, thank you for today. Thank you for all the blessings that you've given us, especially this gift of life. Give us the strength and the peace to do your will with our lives. To worship you is our utmost most goal. And we do that right now through music. You are our protector and our God. Son of God. 
cannot be overcome. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected King has rendered you defeated forever. He is glorified forever. He is lifted high forever. He is risen. He is alive. He is Oh, to be loved.
Good morning. Merry Christmas. Good to see so many people here at 9 o'clock. Amen. This is our uh, fourth week, our final week of the Advent season. Of course, Wednesday is uh, Christmas Eve, and we hope to see you guys here for one of the two services. And this, uh, this week, we light the candle of love, and we'll read from the scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You've probably heard this before, but it bears mentioning. If I speak in tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put away the childhood. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. Candles of faith and hope remind us to trust and anticipate. The candle of peace reminds us that the Prince of Peace has come. And this week, we light the candle of hope or love to remind us that God's plan for us is to grow from His love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you shepherd us through this Advent season. We thank you for reminding us of the importance of this event. And we hope, we pray, we ask for peace. And we know we'll get it because of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we do have Christmas Eve service coming up on Wednesday. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have Christmas carols, right, Josh? Awesome. Rock versions of Christmas carols, but nevertheless, there we go. <laughs> I would take these guys everywhere I go. I'm going to Fred Meyer's. Ching, ching, ching. <laughs> we do need some volunteers, so you people who come to church every week, we'd appreciate it if you could uh, uh, come to that early service and then stay for the 6 o'clock service. The Wham! guys, they're out front at their table. They're going to need people out there to help park. It's going to be a madhouse. They're going around between 4 and 6. We're going to have a full house for both probably, so we'll need a lot of help with that. We, we need volunteers in general. If you could just help us out, we'll have sign-ups out front in the lobby, I think in the cove, 
Also, kids' church is always going to... We won't have kids' church on Wednesday night. That's, uh, the service will only be about 45 minutes long. So we want, your, obviously, the entire family in here because we know having as many kids around open flames as possible is what Christmas is about. <laughs> we need three... Th- kids' church does need three people to help out this morning. So if you want to go and... If you have it in your heart to go and help out with them. And then this afternoon... At the, I'm sorry, at this, uh, this later this morning at the 11 o'clock, we need six people to help out. Um, other than that, it's time for kids. Oh, uh, one other thing. We had, uh, if you remember, we took our survey about uh, two or three months ago. Well, we had, uh, the results did come back, and we had a, a, an hour and a half long consultation with, uh, the, with professionals who, uh, who did the survey, and we're digging into it, and we've got some really good things we're going to launch, and we're going to be teasing them uh, to you guys here in the next year, but we just want to let you know that we've heard it, we're listening, we're continuing to work on that. And with that, you uh, kids, go on off to Kids Church, you adults... Say hi to the people around you, and we'll be right back with some more Christmas tunes. Yes. <laughs> a child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap sleeping, whom angels Shepherds watch our keeping. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him love, the babe, the son of Mary. You can feel free to stand back with us as we continue to worship together.
church how many of you made out to the star of bethlehem last night anybody here wasn't that awesome so 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 good so if you're visiting with us today welcome my name is eric I'm one of the pastors here at friends church 
Uh, before, we sh- before we start, we're going to uh, do the offering and show you guys a quick video, but let me pray really quick before we go any further, because that is always good to do. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for what you have planned. God, I pray that you would just speak clearly through me, Lord, that as we get into your word this morning and look at the incarnation, the coming of our King, that you would give us new revelation, Lord, that our our eyes and our ears would be open to just receive uh, your word, and Lord, that you'd be glorified in this place. As we take this offering today, God, I pray that we would be good stewards of the money that you've trusted us with as a church, that we would use it for your glory, Lord, that we would be able to impact our community, and God, that we would faithfully just pour out as uh, people just continue to pour in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your steadfast love is better than life. God's love has been poured into our hearts. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His Son into the world. Alrighty. So this week's uh, theme of our Advent is love. And last week we talked about the coming Messiah, the redemptive plan that God unfolded through the scriptures starting in Genesis 3 where God promised as He cursed the serpent to crush His head. Uh, Bless all the families of the earth through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the tribe of Judah, through the line of David, we would see one to come who is acquainted with poverty. Um, And in Isaiah 9, this Messiah, this promised Messiah that's been prophesied for over 3,000 years of written uh, scripture that we have, in Isaiah 9, it takes a huge shift that we see. Because Isaiah for the first time in the prophetic lineage shows us that this one to come is not just a mere man, but this is God Himself as He reminds us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulders, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For the first time in the redemptive history, Isaiah shows us that this is God Himself coming to fix what was ruined in the garden, that God was going to crush the enemy, that God was going to bless the families of the earth and fulfill His promise that God was going to do this Himself. The incarnation of God in the flesh, our Messiah, is coming. It wouldn't take 300 men like it did in the story of Gideon, like we we talked about from the book of Judges, 
Um, it would be one child born in the midst of great darkness, and he would be the light of all the world. So today we're going to tackle the most extraordinary miracle in the Bible. The most remarkable mystery in the universe. This is the very thing that our Christianity forms on, and this is the very thing that separates us from all religions on the face of this earth. It is emphasized in eight short verses in the end of Matthew chapter 1, and it's my prayer today that as we look into this word, that you would marvel at the mystery of God's love for you. And if you've never looked in depth at who Christ was, I pray today that through all of the theology I'm going to be sharing with you, that you would get a clear picture at least and take something home of who Christ is. J.I. Packer said this, he said, It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. The more you think about this, the more staggering it gets. The incarnation of God. This morning we're going to start where we ended last week. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you want to go to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be looking at Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And I'm going to be stopping through this to clarify the story as we go. And at the end of this, it's going to build into our, our talk on Jesus. So, this is Matthew 1, 18. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. Let me pause right there. Remember last week when we looked at the coming Messiah, I said that the Greek translation of the word Messiah is Christ. So, Again, Christ is not Jesus' last name. What Matthew is doing here is he's emphasizing, um, and he will continue to do this through the literature, and throughout the whole New Testament we see this, that uh, they are saying this is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Mary and Joseph's last name was not Christ. They weren't Mr. and Mrs. Christ, okay? Um, This is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Moving on. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Let's pause. Okay. So betrothal basically means engagement. Although engagement uh, or betrothal in the first century was a bit different than our 21st century culture. See, in Israel, betrothal was much weightier than engagement in Western societies today. It was so binding that Matthew already calls Joseph uh, her husband in the verse to come in In verse 19, the only thing that was left to happen at this point in the betrothal of Mary and Joseph uh, would be, and this could take up to a year later, was that the wife would be brought into her husband's home and the marriage would be physically consummated. But otherwise, betrothal looked like marriage in such a way that if you were to break off a betrothal in first century Israel, uh, breaking off an engagement, it would be equivalent of divorce and you would actually have to have papers. Okay, so... Moving on. Um, Before they came together, again, looking at the physical consummation there, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a pretty glaring statement. Um, We're used to this by now, but Matthew adds from the Holy Spirit to clue us into something supernatural that's going on here. As we're about to see, Joseph doesn't find out a bit uh, about this... uh, Find out that this is from the Holy Spirit part until a bit later. So put yourself in Joseph's shoes. 
Okay, you have your wife who's been promised to you. You basically have a ring on her finger. The only thing that's left is a physical consummation. And you find out that when she comes home that her st- she's not just full. The bump is growing and she is pregnant for sure. It's something pretty crazy. Knowing that you've had no physical relationship with her, there's only one possible option in your head for how she was pregnant, right? So clearly she had been involved with another man. So imagine the emotions you would have as a husband about to bring your wife into your home only to find out that everything you've known about her is possibly a lie and she is not all pure like you thought she was. So she was found to be with a child. And then in verse 19, it gives us a glimpse of Joseph's perspective in this very moment. It says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly or quietly. Now, let me tell you why that is a good thing. Because the law, as, we, as was understood in this first century Israel at that time, and the termination of an engagement in the case of an adultery... Um, the, the Old Testament penalty for adultery was a stoning. Uh, by the first century, though, when Rome, uh, Roman rule was abolished, Jewish death penalties, when they abolished Jewish death penalties, divorce was a normal co- course. He could have publicly disgraced her. If he would have been, brought her in front of a judge, she uh, definitely would have been publicly disgraced. But we see righteous compassion that he settles on the latter. Um, and he chooses to resolve it quietly. So let's move on. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, so we're used to the story of the virgin birth. Even if you haven't been Christian... Uh, around Christianity, that idea or that statement, I'm sure, has crossed your ears before. But if you're in Joseph's shoes, this is altogether new and absolutely unheard of. You hear this, that which conceived in your wife is from the Holy Spirit. Things just got crazy. And the angel continues, Mary will bear a son. Keep in mind a son, Joseph, that you had nothing to do with. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What an announcement. Moses, or Joseph, Moses, you're going to have a son that you're going to adopt into your family. You're going to give him your legal name, or you're going to give him a legal name, Jesus, which means Yahweh, or the Lord saves. And the angel addressed to Joseph, remember we talked about last week that the Messiah had to come through the line of David, The angel is highlighting this fact as he calls Joseph son of David. It reminds us what is at stake in the decision Joseph has just reached, namely the loss of Jesus' royal lineage, if he wasn't recognized as Joseph's son. So despite his previous decision, he is called to take two decisive actions. First, to accept Mary as his wife rather than divorce her, and secondly, to give her son a name which will confirm his legal recognition of Jesus as his own son and hence also the name son of David. Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. We looked at this prophecy last week. Behold, the virgin shall conceive a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That was written 700 years before this moment in time. 
Can I just stress something that's completely beautiful to me in this verse? That is the beauty of adoption. In fact, it's so loved and cherished by God, it is the very way He brings our Redeemer into this world. I've had some discussions with people recently, especially in this season, talking about the genealogy. If anybody went home last week, you'll notice that the genealogy in Matthew 1 starts from uh, Jesus, the son of David. It goes through Abraham and it gets all the way down to Joseph. And some people go, man, how is that legit? Joseph wasn't Jesus' physical son or father. And um, let me tell you something. Adoption is at the very heart of the gospel. It is the very avenue in which God reveals in Christ and extends to us His most precious gift of love. Christ and your salvation. And if anyone has an issue with Christ's line leaning to Joseph, thinking that it might invalidate or weaken Jesus' position as the heir of the covenant, I would say tread lightly because adoption is the only avenue in which you receive salvation. So the only reason we are saved is because God has adopted us as His sons and daughters. Adoption is unbelievably beautiful to our God. And if you have been physically adopted, you have complete uh, unity with Jesus in this one point. But we're going to save that for another sermon. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did exactly as the angel of the Lord commanded. What a picture of obedience. No question, no condition, no let's, let me get some sleep tomorrow and I'll think about it. No, he obeys. It says he took his wife but knew her not. In other words, he had no physical relationship with her until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So this is how Jesus came to a virgin mother, a shocking pair of words. Virgin mother, naturally impossible. He came to a virgin mother so that physically Jesus is Mary's son, physically, biologically Mary's son, to an adoptive father. He came to Joseph. In naming Jesus and taking Jesus into his family, legally Jesus became Joseph's son. Legally Jesus became in the lineage of David. And that's good enough for God. Joseph's obedience solidified and completed that the king of creation entered this world. And this last point, conceived by the Holy Spirit, eternally, Jesus is God's Son. Obviously, we can't miss this point. This is something we're going to be talking about today. Part of the purpose of the virgin birth of Jesus is to show us beyond the shadow of a doubt that salvation does not come from man, but through God alone. Human flesh will not deliver God's people. They needed something different. This lesson is universal. No king, no prophet can deliver you. No flesh and blood by itself can save No politician or physician, no teacher, no preacher, no father, no mother can deliver mankind. Salvation could never come through the natural line of man. And so God intervenes. It is clearly not the natural work of man. There is nothing you and I can do to save ourselves from our sin. Salvation is not the natural work of man. Salvation is totally the supernatural work of God. 
And this is evident in the very way that Jesus enters into this world through the conception of the Holy Spirit. So who in the world is Jesus? Here we have the perplexing identity of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. What makes Him far and beyond, far and beyond everyone else the center of all history? You think about who Jesus is, particularly based on the story of the virgin birth. Realize this, the verses we just read lay the foundation for everything we know about who Jesus is. These verses lay the foundation for why we worship Jesus, for why we follow Jesus, and why we proclaim Jesus to the nations, all contain within a birth account. Let me expound on them. As the Son of Man, Jesus is fully human. Now you think about this, who is Jesus? Well, as the Son of Man, Jesus is fully human. He is born of a woman as a child, a crying, bedwetting, bedwetting baby. And this is so important to note. Don't let yourself miss the humanity of Christ. Silent Night, Holy Night, that, that song is a farce. Let me tell you why. That night might have been holy, but it was far from silent. Jesus laying in a trough around a bunch of cows and you think he's just going to be cuddled up like this, just sleeping? No. No, I've heard babies scream. Alright? The humanity of Christ, he came into this world and if he wasn't screaming, I'm sure somebody slapped him on the butt so he'd breathe. You know? He came out as a baby. Physically, he was completely human. It is clear enough in the New Testament that Jesus had a human body. John 1.14 means at least this and more, and we're going to look at this in a little bit. The Word became flesh. Jesus was born. He grew. In Luke 2.40 it says, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That's speaking of Jesus. He grew tired. In John 4.6 it says, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was uh, from his journey, was sitting beside the well. He got thirsty. John 19, this is Him on the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. He got hungry. After the desert, where He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. It says He was hungry in Matthew 4, 1-2. He became physically weak. When the devil left after 40 days and 40 nights and the devil came and tempted him, it said the angels came and were ministering to him. And in Luke 23, Jesus didn't carry his cross, did he? He was weak. He couldn't even lift it. And he died. Luke 24, 39. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Physically, Christ was human emotionally completely human. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus clearly displays human emotion. When Jesus hears the centurion's words of faith in Matthew 8, it says that he marveled. In Matthew 26, 38, it says that his soul was very sorrowful even unto death. In John 11, it says that Jesus is deeply moved in the Spirit and greatly troubled and even wept. In John 12, it says that his soul was troubled. In John 13, it says that he was troubled in his spirit. 
the author of the Hebrews writes that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And it's no far-fetched thought that Jesus actually was pretty darn funny too. You hear some of the things he said in the Gospels and I can just see a smirk on his face when people's minds are just exploding. He laughed. He was a joyful person to be around. In fact, at one point, he, he looked at his disciples and he says, the joy I give to you. My joy. John Calvin once said this, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. Now mentally, he was completely human. He also had a human mind. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. He learned in the same way that other children do. I think sometimes we have this idea that Jesus came out speaking words like kingdom, redemption, forgiveness, propitiation. First words out of his mouth. It's just like, no, he had to learn words like pizza and cowabunga or whatever the first century words were for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle lingo. He was learning. He was growing in wisdom. We see that he also had a human will. In John 6, 38, it says, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. In Matthew 26, it says, Not my will, but your will be done. He was fully human. And there are also pa- there's a telling passage in Matthew 13 that stresses on this point. Jesus goes into Nazareth, his hometown, and he's teaching people in the synagogue. And the people were amazed. And this was their response when he came in preaching. They said, where in the world did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is his mother not called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all of his sisters with us? When did this man get all these things? The point is, is that Jesus, who knew him, The people that knew Jesus best in his early life, his closest, his brothers in his hometown, recognized him merely as a man just like everybody else. And this is super important to note so that it is absolutely clear to us that Jesus is fully able to identify with us. This light of the world that came to save mankind, our Messiah, Christ is not unlike us trying to do something for us in a far off place. Jesus is truly a representative of us. We have a Savior who is familiar with our struggle physically, mentally, emotionally. You have a Savior who is familiar with your sorrow. You have a Savior who is familiar with your suffering. Jesus is fully able to identify with you and me, with us. Born of a woman, as a son of man, Jesus is fully human. He is like us in every respect, human body, heart, mind, and will, except for sin. And the writer of Hebrews puts it like this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of people. For people that don't know that word propitiation, it means to make the full measure of wrath, that God's wrath was poured out fully, one time at the cross, for all payment of sin. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. 
Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The majesty of this. How amazing that the divine Son of God would not just take part of our humanity, but all of it. And then take that true humanity all the way to the cross. Jesus took a human body to save your body. Jesus took a human mind to save your mind. Jesus took on your emotion to save your emotion. He took on human will to save our will. And at the cross, it shows us that He took our sin to save our souls. In the words of the 4th century Archbishop Gregory of Nazanius, he says this, That which He has not assumed, He has not healed. But let me tell you something, church. He's assumed it all. He's assumed it all. Jesus became human and full so that He might save us in full. And how can He accomplish this? Because as the Son of God, Jesus is fully divine. And the easiest place to see this is in the beginning of John. Matthew and Luke begin their Gospels by starting out at a nativity scene in Bethlehem, laying out the virgin birth and recounting the marvelous events of Jesus' coming to the world. But John gives us a completely different picture of who Jesus is. He does not start in Bethlehem. He writes this to start off his Gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Just bear with me. I know it's confusing. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not, was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, John reminds, starts by reminding us that Jesus' life did not begin in Bethlehem. It didn't begin in a manger, but it began in the beginning. Now this mirrors not by accident, I might add, how the Old Testament begins, the very first words in our Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, except now John places the word where we would expect to see God in the beginning was the word. Which is fitting here because John declares the word to be God. Now Mark Johnson writes this, he says, Without apology or qualification, John goes back to the time beyond Bethlehem where Jesus was born in Nazareth, Nazareth, where he was conceived, indeed back beyond the beginning of time itself, and allows us a glimpse of a glorious person who has an eternal existence. We find in John's Gospel the Word existed before creation, which makes it clear that the Word, word was not created Eight times in the creation account of Genesis, you can read this, and God said. It was by God's Word that He brought creation into being. John now tells us that this Word is not only a spoken thing, this Word is a person. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. 
Now, this sheds light on Genesis 1.26 when it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Who is us there? God was speaking to the Word. John clarifies in verse 2 and 3, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So the Word is the God's executor in creation. The Word is God's executor in creation. The agent who accomplishes God's will. God said, let there be light, and the Word made light. All through the Bible, it is God's Word that does God's will. Psalms 33.6 says, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made. Psalms 107.20 says, He sent out His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So the Word who made creation also brings God's salvation. And look where John leads us a few verses later. In John 1, 14-17, he says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through the Word, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the Word of God, who made creation and brings God's salvation. Now to stress this point, Colossians 1 starts out with one of the most weighty images of Christ. And Paul says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. When it says firstborn of all creation, that doesn't mean He's created. That means He has dominion over all creation. If you look back to the Greek, just so you know. For by Him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross." And Hebrews begins like this. God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprints of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sin, He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as a name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then Paul in Philippians says this. However, though he was created in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, so emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our nativity scenes pretty up the picture. 
See, Mary gave birth to Jesus in a dirty, crowded stable and placed him in an animal's feeding trough. The author of the story stares into the eyes of the character he breathed out of dust. Never Never has there been or will ever be a more humble act than our God becoming man. Jesus, the light of the world, fully able to understand us completely and fully capable to save us from our sins. This is the greatest mystery and marvel the world will ever know, the incarnation of God. This is the greatest picture of love. C.S. Lewis calls the incarnation the grand miracle. He wrote, The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. Every other miracle prepares for this, or exhibits this, or results from this. It was the central event in the history of the earth, and the very thing that the whole story has been about. By a miracle that passes Human comprehension, the Creator enters His creation. The Eternal enters time. God becomes human in order to die and rise again for the salvation of all people. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space. Down into humanity and further still. Down into a womb and further still. Down into the roots and seabed of the nature He created. But he goes down to come up again and he brings the whole ruined world with him. That God in his glory amongst the worship of angels would forego His glory, to humble himself, to be a peasant, a man accounted with nothing, to die. Through the Bible, we see amazing pictures of his humanity and divinity working seamlessly together. He was born a baby, and on the other hand, he sustains the universe fully human and fully God. He lived 33 years and yet he existed before eternity, human nature, divine nature. In Matthew 8, Jesus is on on a boat with his disciples in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is sleeping. He's tired. We see his humanity and probably having epic God dreams. I don't know what Jesus dreamed like, but it was probably pretty sweet. I mean, what do you dream about when you walk on water physically? It's just like, I do that already, you know. Give me something I don't know. But then in Matthew eight twenty four, it says, Suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, and the disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. These dudes were freaking their minds. They're like, the waves are up, Jesus is sleeping through the whole thing. Let's let him join the party. And what does Jesus do? In Matthew eight twenty six, we read, He said to them, Why are you fearful, you, you of little faith? And he got up 
And he probably stretched like this, maybe did a couple jumping jacks and touched his toes. And then he said, be still. And every single bit of water on the earth stopped moving. It says he rebukes the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And all the men were amazed and asked, What kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? I'll tell you what kind of man, the one that breathed them into existence. He got tired, and he became omnipotent in a split second. Or what about this story? When Jesus gets the word that one of his closest friends, Lazarus, is sick, Listen to what unfolds when Jesus gets to Lazarus' sister's house in John 11.32. It says that she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would have not died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved and asked her, where have you put him? Lord, they replied, come and see. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he, have just, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also kept this man from dying? I don't think they were mocking him. I think they fully understood the power that he possessed. And they're saying, if, dude, if you would have just came a little bit earlier... I mean, we just saw you heal a leopard and a blind dude, okay? But listen to what happens. Then Jesus, angry in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying in front of it. And he said, remove the stone. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, he's already been decaying. It's been four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me and I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this so they may believe you sent me. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. We see the humanity of Jesus in that he wept over his friend. Do not miss this. If Colossians and Hebrews are right, and Jesus is the image of the invisible God, not only do we see a man weeping, but we see a God's response to death. Do you get that? That Jesus, who fully knew that he could speak in a moment his friend would be raised from the dead, still looked at death and weeped. Because he knew the brokenness we were in. And that there's a point in Luke where Jesus looks over the whole entire city of Jerusalem and it said that he wailed over the city because their hearts were turned from him. And he knew that they were going to be stuck under death forever. And we see the picture of the depth of God's love, that in these moments, Jesus had full capability of overcoming death, and yet you see His heart in the midst of it. 
It was never God's design to be separated from you. You need to understand that. And when John talks about the fact Jesus came, the light of the world, what, the, what does light do? Light shines. It reveals. Sometimes that's a good thing when you're running through your house in the middle of the night and you stub your toe in a door frame and you're like, oh my gosh! We need to put a lamp in here. But also times light can burn and it can reveal things we hate. Can it not? I don't mind it showing me a path, but I hate it when it shows you my sin. But not only did this light of the world come to reveal your sin and your depravity and reveal your hopelessness outside of Him, but He came and He pointed to your redemption. The light of the world. Listen to this statement. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In, in, in Psalms, it says that God's Word is a light unto our feet, and a, lamp, a lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. And that Word came and, and walked around Jerusalem 2,000 years ago so that we could live in redemption. In 1 John 1, 5-7 it says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His sin, cleanses us from all sin. Now, I want, I, I, want to, I want you to just grasp something. I know I've been talking a lot, and I hope that some of it's seeping in. We, we went kind of deep today. But if you don't grasp anything else this morning, just take this home, please. Because if Jesus is God, none of His miracles should amaze us. The fact that Jesus walked on water in Matthew, the fact that Jesus made the winds and the waters be still, the fact that Jesus could go to a leopard and heal that leopard. That he could spit into mud and make blind men see. The fact that he could bring the dead back to life. Those are God being God. That's a day at work. Does that make sense? You want to know the greatest marvel and miracle in the, in, in the universe? Is that God became man. Like, God being God makes sense. Why would God stop being God to become man? For you. For me. Jesus was not just a prophet. He wasn't just a good man. He was God in the flesh. And He came so that He could fully be able to save your body. So that He could be fully able to save your emotions, your will, your mind. He came and He had full right of that because He became human. And He was capable of doing it because He is fully God. And what Jesus confirms is this, as we look at this, worship team, you can come forward, is that God is always faithful to His Word. If you were here last week, we tracked through the promises of the Old Testament. We're in the middle of man's fall 
when there's still smoke everywhere in the middle of chaos, God, before even looking at man in his sin, He looks at the serpent and He said, there will be one to come of this woman and you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And then through the Old Testament, we see this unfold, that this one to come, this Messiah, is not only some random man, that this is God Himself, who before time looked ahead and saw your sin, saw our separation, saw that we would leave Him, and still said, before He breathed the stars into existence, I will make you and I will die for you. The perfect plan of God. God in Christ has come to do all the things we were, able, we were never able to do. In Matthew alone, it says that God has come to, seal the hit, come to heal the sick. We see that God has come to feed the hungry. He has come to bless the poor. He has come to bind the brokenhearted. He has come to deliver demon-possessed. But ultimately, we see that God has come to rescue us from a darkness we could never overcome. And the one thing that's awesome is that in all other religions, light and darkness are these competing things. It's like, you know, is this going to overcome? This going to overcome? The first words written, uh, recorded of what God spoke in the Bible is He said, let there be light. Now in context of what we talked about this morning, really what He's saying is let there be Christ. So from the very moment God spoke, He affirmed that no amount of darkness will be able to shine or cast out what He has spoken into being because His promises are always true. I don't care how dark your situation is or how much curses you feel under or how broken your life is. You have a Redeemer who can not only completely understand what you're going through but has the full capability of getting you out. In Christianity, in this King, light and darkness are not opposing equal things. Because it says in the moment that light got cast out that the darkness flee. And in John 1, it says this. The light shines in the darkness darkness will not overcome it. This is the story of Christmas. This is why we meet. That we would live in the light of our Redeemer. That we would live in the revelation of this mystery. That we will never understand that God would become man. This is the truth of His Word. There's no greater love. Father, I don't know where people are at this morning. I don't even know if I made sense. But Lord, I I know one thing, and that's Your Word is truth. I know one thing. That our Redeemer has come our Messiah has come. He is the light of the world. 
And Lord, I know that your promises are true. We have a track record. Thousands of years of written literature. We have the stars that proclaim your glory. We have the testimonies of redeemed lives. Lord, I pray that if people are feeling broken this morning, that the revelation of who you are would overwhelm them. That they'd be drawn into the truth of your love. Lord, that since the moment this word fell, you have not been far off. Since the moment this word broke, this world was broken, you didn't just retreat that you have been proclaiming the redemptive history and the coming of our King. And that in Christ we see the full revelation of the power that you have overcome death and the grave. And we find the intimacy of your love. God, I just pray that you would just solidify that truth into us the mystery of your incarnation that it would be our rest Jesus we will never understand what you did but we will worship you forever for it if you want prayer this morning if you're feeling broken There's going to be some people up here. I'm going to be up here. Just come up. If you have any questions or if I completely confused you, you, we can talk in the back too. Shining 